Well, go ahead and open your Bibles and please turn to Isaiah chapter 49. Isaiah chapter 49. And what we're going to see today is is many fascinating things in another servant song. And as we pointed out last time, there are a total of five servant songs. And we're in the midst of a series in the book of Isaiah, and it's kind of a series within a series, these five servant songs that tell us about the servant, which we understand to be Jesus Christ. Last time we looked at the, at the servant's justice from Isaiah 42, and we saw that his mission is one of, is, is no less than putting everything in the world back in order putting God above all other things and all things in right relationship to one another. And so it's a beautiful ministry of justice, a beautiful ministry of renewal. And so when you hear Jesus spoken of in the context of bringing great justice, that's what he's doing. He's reordering the world according to God's will, God's design. Now this week, we're going to develop that theme. We're going to give a little more details upon it from Isaiah chapter 49, the second servant song. And we're going to see, okay, what is the path to the justice and the renewal? What are some more of the details of this servant, uh, Jesus, and what, how it, is it that he is called to this work and how he will do it? And here's what we're going to learn today. We're going to learn today very simply. Uh, I'll go ahead and put it up here for you. Um, that God planned from the beginning to send Jesus to fulfill the mission of Israel by bringing blessings to the whole world. And so we're going to fill in the blanks on that, but this will be the one thing that we can walk away from this understanding. And it's going to aid us whenever we read the prophets, whenever we read the Old Testament to understand where Israel fits into the plan, because the Old Testament's primarily about Israel. Well, how does that fit into God's overall plans? How do we make the connection to what it is we're doing today? And how is this relevant to where we are in 2023 in Carroll County, Kentucky? We're going to find this is profoundly relevant. Well, I want to begin by reading in Isaiah chapter 49, uh, verses 1 through 7. And what I'd uh, like to point out along the way is that this is being spoken, first of all, from the perspective of this servant. And so as we go to Isaiah chapter 49, here's what we find there. It says, Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother. He named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand he hid me. He made me a polished arrow. In his quiver he hid me away. And he said to me, You are my servant Israel in whom I will be glorified. But I said, I have labored in vain. I've spent my strength for nothing and vanity. Yet surely my right is with the Lord, and my recompense is with my God. And now the Lord says, He who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. He says, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and his Holy One, to one deeply despised, aboard by the nation, the servant of rulers, kings shall see and arise. Princes, and they shall prostrate themselves because of the Lord 
who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, who has chosen you. Let's pray. Father God, this day we seek to learn more of the Savior. When we learn more about him, he is lifted up in our view. He is glorified in the midst of us. And we are then sent out with greater understanding, with greater motivation of who he is and what he has done to proclaim the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ to the world. We pray this day that your equipping comes through your word and is strengthened by your spirit. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, here we have a, a fascinating uh, scripture, and there's many details in here that you might find interesting. And I'm sure that as I read this the through with you, and as you followed along, you probably saw things in it. You're like, oh, I didn't realize that was in there. I think I get it. I think I understand. Well, we are learning more and more through the book of Isaiah, and what we're going to learn is these servant songs are about the Lord Jesus Christ, and we established that this is about Jesus last time. I've put into your notes this time all five of the servant songs and some cross-references to the Bible where the New Testament tells us that these servant songs are about Jesus. So don't take my word for it. Search the scriptures. See how the New Testament writers understood these songs in Isaiah and pointed to them, saying that these were about Jesus Christ himself. And then by extrapolation, by for, for the ministry of the church as well. And so I hope you uh, have a good time looking through those. And again, we'll have a, a blog article, which will have all the cross-references hyperlinked for you so you can click on those and, and read them. But I want to uh, take a, a look here in verse 1. And it says in verse 1, it says, uh, Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb. Now, some of your cults uh, will take a look at this and they will say, See, Jesus didn't exist until he was in the womb. And they'll say, because this says he was called from the womb. Well, we know that Jesus was pre-existent. We need only go to John chapter 1 to understand that he was there in the beginning, that all things were made through him. There wasn't anything made that wasn't made through him. So he had to have been pre-existent. And we can also look in Colossians chapter 1. We can also look in the book of Revelation. It says this about him in 3.14, as he calls himself the beginning and the end multiple times in the book of Revelation. He says, um, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. So he's the agent of creation. He is also the hand of God, as we saw from Isaiah 49, 2. Uh, he is hidden in the shadow of his hand. And we'll talk more about that later. But the first thing I want to point out is this, and this is very important. We are dealing with poetry. We are dealing with poetry here. And so when somebody in poetry says something like, um, like we have in verse one here, the Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother, he named my name. In other words, this is a way, a poetic way of saying my purpose was predetermined. And theologically, this is important because it doesn't mean that Jesus qualified to be Messiah during his life, that all of a sudden he grew into it and, and he took upon that role because he was so worthy of it. And many of the cults teach exactly that. And this doesn't mean that God looked around the world, oh, it's time for a Messiah. Who would we have? Oh, this guy, Jesus from Nazareth, is pretty sharp. I'll choose him. No, this is not how it worked at all. This was something done 
beforehand. And when we say beforehand, we mean he is an eternal member of the Godhead. Always having been there, always will be there. And the agent of creation. So this means that he was the incarnated son of God. And in fact, from the foundation of the world. So he was there all along. And there's two things in verse 2 that are very interesting here. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. Now, if we look through the book of Isaiah, and I've given you a number of cross-references here, Jesus is often a fulfillment of the hand or the arm of the Lord. And the word shadow here is not limited to a literal shadow. And remind you, we're dealing with poetry here, but the word shadow here also has a range of meaning to it that would mean a type or a typology of sorts, a representative, a silhouette of things. And so he's saying, okay, in the imagery of, the, of his hand, he hid me. And as that sparks a thought in us, does he mean, you know, in the imagery of his hand? We go through the book of Isaiah, we look up the references to the hand, and we find out, sure enough, Jesus is this hand. And he says he was hidden there. In other words, he, he kind of packed him in there, something that wouldn't make sense until later. And it wouldn't make sense until uh, maybe Jesus came along, incarnated, had his ministry, rose from the dead, and the apostles are sitting around thinking, you know, we're searching the scriptures. Remember Jesus had that walk with them on the Emmaus Road? You think occasionally maybe some of the apostles went to those two that were on the road with him and, and occasionally asked a question like, did he ever mention this uh, servant in Isaiah? Did he ever mention this ministry of Joseph? That seems kind of like, like him, like a parallel to him. And, and it could confirm, yeah, that's one of the things he said on the road. So this further illustrates that Jesus was there before his incarnation, but was hidden in this. And this is also fascinating in verse 2 here. He made me a polished arrow in his quiver. He hid me away. In other words, he was there in the quiver, but the arrows in the quiver are not seen until they're pulled out to be shot. And so this is the Lord, and this is the servant himself saying, oh, I've been there all along, but I've been hidden. You've not necessarily seen me. And then we're teased in verse one, maybe you notice this, from the body of my mother, he named my name. Which name? What, which one's he talking about? I don't know. But we know that what that is saying is my purposes were outlined ahead of time. Well, this is fascinating, and I hope this helps you in reading the scriptures and reading especially the prophets because you begin to see, okay, Jesus is there, but he's purposefully at times hidden among the text and only makes sense when we bring in the New Testament truth of the gospel, the things that were revealed by Christ and by the apostles. It is God's prerogative to keep things secret. And here in his word, this should make us look for Jesus all the more in the Old Testament, all the things that point to him. God planned from the very beginning to send Jesus to fulfill the mission of Israel. So what is this mission of Israel? And this is, this is interesting when we start thinking about this. He planned from the beginning and he uh, planned for him to fulfill the mission of Israel. This is interesting because in verse 3 here, there is something that could cause a little bit of confusion. It's a very challenging thing. 
because verse 3 very plainly says, He said to me, You are my servant Israel, in whom I'm glorified, or I will be glorified. And so we'll say, okay, well, these verses must be about Israel. They must not be about Jesus, the, the one and only servant of Israel. How do we understand this? Well, in Isaiah, very clearly, Israel is called the servant of the Lord. You go back, especially in this context, chapter 44, here now, O, o Jacob, my servant, Israel, whom I have chosen, and later in chapter 44, remember these things, O Jacob and Israel, for you are my servant. And in chapter 45, for the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel, my chosen, I call you by your name. I name you, though you do not know me. It's clearly speaking of Israel as the servant of the Lord. But if we go and we see what's going on here, what is the mission of this servant? Back to chapter 49, verse 5. It's that Israel might be gathered to him. It's to bring Jacob back to the Lord. And so we know Israel cannot bring themselves back. Israel went off into destruction, having failed with, in their covenant with God. They were carried off into exile. Who's going to bring them back? Well, they're not going to bring themselves back. And so here we have this servant is named with a slightly different mission, a mission to Israel, a mission to do something for Israel. And we look in verse 6, and it's reiterated, to raise up the tribes of Jacob, to bring back the preserved of Israel. This servant could not have been Israel because his mission was to bring Israel back. So then how do we understand that it very clearly says Israel in verse 3? And this is something that we should ask, and this is something we should wrestle with. You are my servant Israel, in whom I will be glorified. Well, one, uh, God called Israel. He called them, and he uses the word called many times. In the servant songs, he uses the word called for Jesus Christ. And in the New Testament, he uses the word called for the church. And all along the way, he talks about Israel, and usually he's talking about the nation, but sometimes he's talking about Jesus. And are you ready for this? Sometimes he's talking about the church. For it is a singular mission all through time. It was Israel's mission, according to Isaiah 42, to be a light to the nations. And this is the servant's mission in chapter 49, verse 6, where we find ourselves. And so it is also the continuing mission of the gospel carried now by the church, which is the body of Christ, the body of the servant himself. The Lord has commanded us they say in the book of Acts. The Lord has commanded us. Do you see that? He takes what was originally written for the nation Israel from the book of Isaiah. He applies it directly to the church. He says, I've made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Cited from this very passage in the book of Isaiah. I hope this is destroying your Bible reading. Because now we've, we've found this, and we have found that when it speaks of Israel, sometimes it speaks of Israel, the nation. Sometimes it speaks of the mission of Israel, which is fulfilled in Jesus Christ and still being fulfilled in his body, the church. It's about the mission. 
And this is where we have to be cautious because a lot of people say you can't teach that because what will happen is we'll go back under the law. People will say, oh, we're just Israel. We got to follow all those laws and everything else. No, that was a covenant that they had contingent upon their behavior in the land, the covenant which they broke. We are members of the new covenant built upon the previous promises. The covenant having to do with the land and specifically the blessings and the curses and all those things about their contingencies, how life's going to be for them in the land, those things have been passed over. They were temporary. They served many good purposes, which we'll get to in a moment. It's the mission of Israel, however, to be a light to the nations. A mission passed it on to Jesus Christ. A mission passed on to the church. And so the question has to come when we bring this up, was Israel a failure? When you read the Old Testament, you get to the end of the Old Testament, it may be tempting to think, you know, gee, we've seen these people wrestle with God, which is maybe a, another potential meaning of the, the term Israel, actually. But we've seen these people wrestle with God. We've seen their failings. We've seen their difficulties. And although he brought them out of this land, gave them a land they didn't have to work for at all, a perfect land flowing with milk and honey, gave them all the blessings they possibly could, and these victories in war and everything else, and made a covenant with them concerning that land. And we saw them fail time and time and time again. No matter how much he gave them, no matter how many prophets he sent, no matter how sure his word was and how many times he fulfilled promises miraculously at times in their presence, by the time we get to the end, they have tested him all the way to their exile, all the way to him describing their relationship as being in divorce, as being in a broken covenant, nevertheless bringing them back to the land to a diminished temple, to diminished numbers. And the end of the book, we have three prophets that continue to speak to the people of Israel about their problems. And it just ends there. And then you get done with the Old Testament, you're like, well, that was a waste of time. So the question is, did, did Israel fail? Well, no. Through Israel, God gave the law in order for Jesus Christ to display his righteousness to the world and every mouth to be shut before God at the giving of this law that none of us can attain to. The first step of the gospel is to come in line with our need for the gospel. He gave the line of the kings for Jesus to show himself as the ultimate king. He gave the priesthood that we would understand the sacrifice and the intercessory work of Jesus Christ. He gave the prophets and the definition of genuine prophets by which to measure Jesus Christ and their prophecies to confirm him and his identity. That through the people of Israel, he gave the wisdom literature as a guide for his people to this very day to call them a failure when there's another entire testament of the Bible is a little premature because they had not yet brought forth the Messiah. God sends the Messiah, offers him as a sacrifice, institutes a new covenant, sends the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost upon thousands of what? Israelites who go and begin to proclaim the gospel all over the known world. Are they a failure? No. That would make God a failure. 
They turned the world upside down. As we read in the book of Acts, a movement that has saved many millions of people since. That is not a failure. Was it a struggle? Absolutely. Was it at times a disaster? Yes. But it was always in the hands of God, and so it succeeded. Now, I hope you're getting the message of Isaiah at this point. See, God gave the book of Isaiah as an encouragement. And I know you're reading through the first 39 chapters of Isaiah thinking this isn't terribly encouraging at the time. But it was given as an encouragement despite the attack of the Assyrians, despite the coming Babylonian exile, the destruction of Jerusalem and a temple lying in ruins. God all along had a plan and he showed it. He had a secret weapon, as it were. And his plan was not going to fail. See, God knew they would have the scrolls of Isaiah in exile, and he intended these messages to be an encouragement that he had this polished arrow that was going to make it all happen. Who would bring Israel back to him? But even more, who would bring in all the nations? So he introduces this servant. And I'll remind you of today's point. God planned from the beginning to send Jesus to fulfill the mission of Israel by bringing blessings to the whole world. Let's talk about this last point a little bit. Bringing blessings to the whole world. Jesus brings salvation to, his, to the world by his word. Look in verse 6 here. Go back to the scriptures here. In verse 6 it says this, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. You notice he's talking about like that like that's a done deal. But that's not enough for you. That's not a task worthy of the Christ. See here, the son tells us what the father said to him. And the father at some point said to him, it's not enough that you would just bring back Israel and Jacob. Here's what I want to do. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach the end of the earth. And how's he going to do it? Well, if we go back to verse 2, he gives us a clue. That is, the New Testament writers just run with. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. Did you ever notice this in John chapter 12? A lot of people say, oh, Jesus didn't come to judge the world. And indeed, Jesus plainly says that. But it's often interpreted by people, and it's often meant by people to say, oh, Jesus really doesn't matter that much. He's all about love and good and happiness stuff, so you're okay. Now, look what he says here. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. Let me back up a little bit and get this, this context. In verse 47, if anyone hears my word and does not keep them, I do not judge him. So Jesus went all through this ministry, went to the cross, and none of those people that rejected him, that called out, crucified him, none of those people that turned their back on him or betrayed him, at that time he didn't judge him. He says, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words as a judge, the word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. Did you catch that? Say, so I'm not going to judge you. I'm going back up to heaven, and it's my words that I've left that will judge you. His mouth is like a sharp 
two-edged sword. We find this not only in Isaiah 49.2, but we also find it elsewhere. Let me put this up there for you. I'm trying. There we go. Um, but uh, Isaiah 49.2, but also look at uh, Matthew or um, Acts 2.42, where they were devoted to what? The apostles' teaching, the very first thing mentioned in the early church. What are they devoted to? They're devoted to the word of God. They're devoted to the teaching of the apostles, which is the interpretation of the word of the Old Testament and its application in the New Testament and everything else. It's this word that will judge them, and it is this word that goes out to the world. In the book of Romans, it talks about the word of God and how Moses wrote about the righteousness based on the law and he says, but the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith we proclaim. What's he on about? He's on about the fact this is all about the word of God. If we are going to confess, if we are going to believe, it's about the word of God. He says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, how will you know he's Lord? By the word of God. And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. How will you believe that he was raised from the dead? By the word of God. You will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified. With the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. And this is interesting because then he asks these rhetorical questions. How then will they call on him in whom they've not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? So the message is in the preaching. It's brought by those who know the word of God, who bring the word of God, who are Jesus' people. How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. And look what he quotes from, interestingly, right after this. Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? You know, that's the beginning of the fourth servant song, the one you know so well, that speaks of his crucifixion, his sacrifice for us, who's believed our report? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? And so this is powerfully important for us to understand. We understand that it is faith that saves, but that faith comes through the word of God, which must be preached by each and every one of us. And it's so easy for us to overcomplicate the mission of the church. It's so easy for us to, to make it more than it has to be. The mission is simply this. Take the word of God into all the nations and preach it. And we have this promise of God, which we do not have on any particular program of the church, that we do not have on any particular strategy that we might come up with, that we do not have on any particular statement of faith or anything else, we have this promise from the book of Isaiah that his word will not return empty. It will accomplish that for which he purposes, succeed in the thing for which he sent it. So if we are out there, no matter what we're doing to spread the gospel, to share the gospel with someone else, what has to be at the center of it is the word of God. Because no other thing has this promise attached to it. So today's point was very, very simply this. Let me get back to it here where it's summarized. Um, God planned from the beginning 
to send Jesus to fulfill the mission of Israel by bringing blessings to the whole world. Okay, well, that's nice information, but what does it mean to me? Well, first of all, it should mean this, and it should, we should understand it this way. There is no other way of salvation. If we go to Isaiah 49.7, the last verse we looked at today, we go to Isaiah 49.7, thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel, um, to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers, kings shall see and arise. You ever, you ever been to court? <laughs> I mean, I'm sure as a juror or something like that, right? Yeah, you've been to court as a juror or, or something like that. And, uh, and you've noticed when the judge walks in, everyone stands. Here he's saying of the servant, kings shall see and arise. Princes, and they shall prostrate themselves. Now what does that word mean? That word means to put their face to the ground, to bow down deeply to the ground, maybe even to completely lay on the ground. Let that sink in a minute. Even the greatest upon earth will bow down to Jesus. And somehow in my ministry, I keep running into the people who are the exceptions. And maybe you've done this. You've run into the people that are the exceptions, who you tell them about Jesus, and they go, oh, yeah, that Jesus thing, yeah, that's cool. But, you know, eh, me and God, we're kind of working it out on my own. I'm okay. I don't need to go to church. Kings shall see and arise, princes, and they shall prostrate themselves. Who do people think they are that they can receive the gospel of Jesus Christ and, and just be like, meh? They think themselves better than kings or princes, to be honest. And this is really where it meets the road here. This is where it gets real serious because let's think about this, you know, and people want to say, oh, yeah, I think if you live a good life, there's all these other ways to, you know, to the Lord and, and there's all these other ways of salvation and all these religions are equally valid. Okay, let's, let's bring that before the Lord and suggest that to him. And look at the drastic measures that he has gone through, the death of one of the Godhead. Thousands of years of planning, of struggling, of working with the nation Israel, and then the, the disciples, and then the church. Prophecy upon prophecy, volumes of typology given to us, and shadows and motifs woven through the word of God, and indeed all the fabric of creation, pointing to one singular solution for everything that ails the world. And God's going to go, yeah, that's good enough. Uh, you, you Hindus, you're mostly good. That's, that's fine. All you other people come in, you mostly obeyed your laws in your country. And I'm sure those were good laws by well-intended people, so come on into the kingdom. No. No, in fact, Jesus illustrates it like this in the New Testament. He says, look, the, the master gave a great banquet, and he invited everybody to it. First, he invited particular people to it. He had a guest list. He invited those guests first that were on the guest list, and most of them declined. 
So he sent his servants out. He says, you know what? You go and you find them all. I want you to go up and down every road. I want you to bring everybody great and small to this banquet of mine. And this is what he's done. Sending the gospel to the nations. First to the Jews, then to the Gentiles. To bring himself in a singular body. Why should God bow down, therefore, to what we think is sincere religion? Why should he meet us on our terms after all that he has done to provide the Lord Jesus Christ? Why should he honor what we define as a good life when we can plainly display that all of us have made mistakes? None of us are without sin. How do we even know our own standards are adequate? He has shown himself to be the very definer of measurement itself. So what kind of measure can we put upon ourselves to judge ourselves? What kind of measurement can we put upon God to judge him? God has shown us the one and only way with irrefutable proofs. And all that is left is to repent and give him the glory he deserves. And I think it's plain to say after what we've seen in the scriptures, the scope of what God has done and woven into our reality is simply this. If we have no room for Jesus Christ, there's no room in his kingdom for us. So that's the first important point we want to see. There's no other way of salvation. The second is this. From what we've seen here in Isaiah 49, Jesus Christ will not fail. He will not fail. We're going to catch a glimpse of the future here along the lines of connecting verse 7 in our passage to something in the New Testament. Let's take a look at this. Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 through 11. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. This idea of name again. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. That means those who have died. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Although this passage of scripture that we saw and Isaiah was written more than a hundred years before their exile. In all the references I'm reading and things for this in the commentaries, everyone's pretty much agreeing that God clearly intended this section to help those who were in exile, to encourage them that this isn't the end. Yeah, you're over there in Babylon, and you've been exiled out of your land. Your land has been destroyed. The walls of your city are ruined and crumbled. Your temple itself, the place you connected to God, has been destroyed. And now you're in a foreign land among foreign people whose laws are hostile to your ways and everything else. But don't worry. There's hope. There's a servant coming that kings and princes will bow down to. There is a servant coming that will bring you back, not just back to God, but will bring in all the nations with you. You say, well, that's great for the Israelites. What about me? I hope you can see a parallel because most of you grew up in what you considered to be a Christian nation. 
but almost, and then we stand in a time now where almost all major denominations have compromised some of the basic elements of the gospel. And we have the greatest percentage of people in our country ever that don't have any affiliation with any kind of religion. And you have you ever seen a more corrupt and sinful society? Embracing sin, celebrating sin, legally mandating that people celebrate sin. And the question is, what is our hope? What is God's message that's relevant for us today in this age, thousands of years after Isaiah lived? Our hope is this. Look at the screen. That God will be glorified by his glorious servant, Jesus Christ, and his body, the church. And knowing this, we can remain steadfast, knowing that he will not fail, that we only need to keep proclaiming his word, to hold forth the light for the nations, knowing that our faithful servant will judge rightly and bring restoration to all the earth, that he will establish justice around the whole globe, bring to pass whatever it is we pray for, that his will be done on earth as much as it is in heaven. We do know that he will succeed, but there is much we don't know. And for that reason, we hold fast to the mission. We keep proclaiming the truth, no matter how dark it might seem. We hold forth the light because no darkness can overcome light. We don't know if revival is right around the corner. We don't know if the next conversation will bring the salvation of a soul. We don't know if but this next generation will rebel against the authorities and nonsense of this world and embrace the Lord Jesus Christ and so bring about a great renewal. We don't know what might happen. And because we don't know those things, we cling to what we do know, and that's this, that we are the Israel of today, that we have the gospel message, we have the saving truth of Jesus Christ, and we take it forward so as to be found faithful when he returns. Let's pray. Father God, we praise you for this. This message, Lord, has reached people over thousands of years in the very worst of times and even the very best of times, Lord, that this has reached people in their prison cells locked up for proclaiming the gospel truth. And this has reached those, Lord, that, that minister in a time of peace and of gospel spreading and gospel saturation of their land. But, Lord, it is relevant to every age that we keep on proclaiming the word of Christ. That understanding that the servant himself who cannot fail has handed this ministry to us, his body. That he empowers it by his spirit. That he fuels it by his word. That he gives us the light to go and shine forth into a dark world. I pray, Lord, that this will meet us today where we're at. In a day when many might despair or many might lose hope, Lord, we pray that you will rekindle our hope, that you will renew in us the joy of our salvation, that we may proclaim light to the Gentiles as has been your plan from the very beginning. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs>